And when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner, always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. You have 30 trillion transferring to women by 2030, either through earnings or inheritance. And then you have the transitional wealth to the next generation. And they already ingrained this in their decision-making from where they work to what they eat to how they live their life. So ultimately, Mother Earth's going to be restored. She'll regenerate herself. And it's up to us as humans. Are we going to let a political disagreement actually hinder the progress that we need to make over the next 7 to 10 to 20 years or are we going to be silenced by the negative connotation that has become the norm? Hey everyone, most of our episodes go deep into specific opportunities to address climate change through new technologies, investment opportunities, advocacy, and policy. This episode takes a step back to look at climate and impact investing, how they've evolved in recent years, and where they're heading. Not only have climate and impact investing exploded in recent years, they've also become more mature spaces with more opportunities, tools, nuances, and complexity. So I was thrilled to get to zoom out for this conversation and speak with a true pioneer and leader in this field, Jen Kenning. Jen is the founder and CEO of Align Impact, an independent specialized impact and financial advisor that works with high net worth families, individuals, and foundations. Align is an Inc. 5000 company, and Jen is one of the most recognized voices in impact investing and wealth management. She was selected for Private Asset Management's 50 Most Influential Women in Private Wealth, and her firm recently earned global recognition as one of the top 200 impact companies of 2023 by Real Leaders. So sit back and enjoy a true expert's take on climate investing, past, present, and future. Here we go. Hey, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jason. It's great to be with you. Oh, It's been a long while since we saw each other at SOCAP and probably some other conferences, so it's great to be reconnecting with you here. Let's get started by learning a bit about you. You've been advising individuals, families, and foundations on investment strategies that align to their values for many years now. Tell us a bit about your background and the work that you do at Align Impact. Yeah, it's been an exciting journey. It's hard to believe that I've been advising families, foundations, and institutions for over 20 years now, but I've been doing that in an impact manner since 2008 and full-time since 2014. Alliance actually about to be nine years old. So it's been a very interesting last decade plus, especially in the last few years. So I'm looking forward to diving into more about that later. And the business has really shifted along with the ecosystem. And I really think what clients are looking for today, it's no longer just a carve out or a nice to have. It's really integrating their values into their why and having that be expressed across a portfolio as well as their philanthropic and their policy endeavors. Fantastic. I'd love to go deeper into that because really your experience offers really unique perspective. So I'm excited to hear your thoughts on where we're at now and how we got here. So let's start by looking backwards. You said that it's no longer just a carve out. 
in your view, how has mission aligned investing changed over the years? I think the first thing that I've noticed is that we've actually expanded maybe nomenclature, our definitions or what we can include under the impact umbrella. And we've really started to look at it from each individual investor's point of view while having some sense of standardization inside of the ecosystem. And what I mean by that is that you could really focus on sustainability with one individual of a family. You could focus on divestment or things that may do harm or negative screening with another member. You could focus on social issues with another member, and you could actually bridge all three of those perspectives together today. That wasn't the case a decade ago. A decade ago, we did not have as much product as we have today. We didn't have the track record we have today. We had very few funds that were even on fund one, two, or three. Now we have funds five, six, and seven. And we actually have seen, especially over the last three to five years, the intersectionality between climate and social issues and how they actually are working together in parallel, which I think allows us to build a bridge versus a wall and allows us to come together from our unique vantage point and allows each client to really define what impact or mission alignment means for them, their why, and then express it in their portfolio in who they want to invest in, how they want to invest, and what their overarching objective is, not only from a financial perspective, but also from an impact perspective. Yeah, it's really interesting because we hear about the importance of investing in equity alongside of climate and the importance of a climate justice framework. But what you're saying is that for individual or family or institutional investors, that intersectionality actually creates more opportunity too. I'd love to go deeper into that and just better understand maybe some examples of how you see that intersectionality playing out and the types of opportunities it's creating for investors. The first thing I would say is that you want to first meet the client where they're at and have a really good understanding of what climate means to them and what social or social justice means to them. And then you want to find the natural place where they intersect so that it isn't so foreign. I think we as practitioners almost tend to make things more complicated than they need to be to prove a point when in reality, there's a role and a place for everything in society each investment that we make. When we at Align think about climate specifically, we're actually looking at it from three perspectives. One is what are the things that we can adapt to? What are we trying to mitigate and how do we conserve? So adaptation, mitigation, and conservation. And then when we think about it inside of a climate justice lens, We're then looking to say, how can we actually look at the most vulnerable populations that are having negative impacts because of climate? And how can we actually reverse that? Where can we bring resources to them so that they can adapt to their negative environment and actually improve it? And then lastly, how do we actually bring meaningful bottom-up solutions, right? So that we're really tackling it from the community's perspective, and we're really having a more distributive justice process that's more inclusive when you think about where we're going from a climate mitigation and ultimately a decarbonization. So to take this to the investment level, we've seen so many opportunities in private debt for sustainable ag. So we see this as a 
huge climate play as well as farming. And then you could take it one step further and you could say that actually the farming practices and the regenerative soil is going to impact our health and our communities. And then if you want to go even further, we can look at it from an ownership lens of where we're shifting not only what's being grown on that crop, but who's the owner of that crop and who's going to actually benefit from the ownership of that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Another area that we see huge opportunity when you look at the intersectionality between climate and social is on the real asset side. So if you think about real estate or real assets in general, there's massive opportunity to bring renewable energy to low-income communities that has profound impacts on their discretionary income as well as their livelihood and ultimately other health factors. I could continue on and on, but I'll, I think I'll pause there. <laughs> Thanks. Well, really interesting just to hear about that you've described there's more products than there were in the past. And you know, even just describing the availability and the growth of private debt for sustainable ag kind of gives a sense of how niche some of the opportunities are. And so I'm really curious to how this moment is, how you see it's reflected in the choices that your clients face and ultimately their portfolios and how are their investments different than say five, 10 or 15 years ago? Well, today we're using a lot more tools than we were using five or 10 years ago. And what I mean by that is we're not just using straight equity or straight debt. We're really looking at alternative financing mechanisms that work to bring the solution to market or to the ultimate beneficiary. I can't say that we were doing that a decade ago. The second thing is we're looking at a spectrum of capital. So we're looking at what's the right type of capital that we're using to ultimately drive a solution. And then where should that capital come from? So what I mean by that is there are certain things where alternative financing makes sense and we may be willing to take a concessionary return and we might put that in the donor advised fund or the private foundation. Whereas we might be able to do private debt on a renewable energy opportunity and get attractive market rate debt returns for the risk that we're taking that have semi-liquidity and those might be more appropriate for an income generating portfolio that is designed to be lived off of. And then lastly, when we think about venture and private equity and those asset classes where we need a longer lockup and we're faced with illiquidity, those opportunities can be in the portfolio that's really tailored towards growth and ultimately future generations for a family or future generations of the endowment of a foundation. So when you think of the spectrum of capital, we now have the opportunity to actually think through what's the right source of capital and then ultimately what's the right entity to take that risk and ultimately make that investment because the underlying financial objectives align with the time horizon for the underlying beneficiaries. That's great. And the picture that you painted really shows not just the spectrum of capital, but ultimately for investors, a more diversified portfolio. And I'd love to go deeper into that last part, so venture financing. And there's so much innovation happening in climate tech now. And because of the widespread commitment to decarbonization, it's just, of course, creating so much more opportunity for investors. I'm curious, what opportunities are you most excited about in the climate tech space? 
There's so much to be excited about. I think we first break it out into software, hardware, then certain impact themes and what we're trying to accomplish. And then again, back to my opening remarks around adaptation, mitigation, and conservation. So we're looking at it from those kind of three different angles, as well as the climate and social justice angle. So when we think about transitioning to a green economy, we're really thinking about solutions that could range from how do we reskill certain programs and jobs so that we can actually have enough workers that can help us build the infrastructure to transition. And technology is going to be a huge piece of that, right? Technology is going to fill certain gaps and then humans are going to fill other gaps. How do we do that in a really thoughtful way? The other way we're looking at it is how do we actually help finance certain things from a transition in the developing world or the emerging economies? And where can technology and clean tech be a resource for that where they can kind of skip over what we've had to do in the developed world? And then lastly, really looking at certain subsidies and communities and seeing, okay, how do you support the transfer of technology and looser IPs so that you don't have such exclusivity and you're able to actually allow that open architecture to further another community much faster, much cheaper, and in a more thoughtful way that's going to drive real value, not only to the original creator of that IP, but also to the underlying community that gets to be the beneficiary. I like to think, Jason, that one of the greatest advancements in the last three years was COVID, right? Because it leveled the playing field in so many ways. And it actually had us take a pause to see that we're all going to rise together or we're all going to fall together, right? There's no escaping what's going on in the climate conversation or the landscape today. And so a lot of the solutions that we see really prove to be effective on so many different levels across different categories, different challenges, different solutions, and ultimately different groups of individuals. I love that framing. Jen, there's so many different opportunities that investors often get lost amidst the variety of choice. And I'm curious, for investors that are particularly driven by the urgency as well as the opportunity in the climate transition, what are some strategies that you think they absolutely should consider, as well as ones that they should consider not employing or that they should make sure not to do? So I'll start with the positive. I also think the ones they should not do are also positive in a way. I would start with, let's really focus on what type of capital do you have and then matching that capital with the right solution. Far too often, we're not taking enough early stage risk around climate because we're too scared to take that risk. That's what your foundation or your donor advised fund is for, is to de-risk the opportunity to prove that you can get it to scale or at least get it to its next phase. And then other types of capital should be used for later stage. So for example, when we're getting a purchase power agreement that has a 20-year contract, that's de-risked significantly. And that looks more like a bond or a real estate investment that derives a yield over a period of time that it can be reliable. That's going to operate differently in your portfolio than an early stage climate tech deal that needs enormous capital to even prove the concept out. 
the things that I would say you shouldn't do, personally, I think everyone has their own preferences. I'd say start with where you're banking and start to continue to put pressure on what they're funding. I'm really encouraged to see at the end of June, so last week, that we're actually funding more sustainable, renewable projects, green projects, than we are oil and gas and coal. That's the first time we've actually seen that actually occur. If you look at the data from 2022 to the data from 2023, you're seeing an inverse relation. We need to continue to put pressure on the institutions that have the capital to continue to move towards a renewable economy and infrastructure. And then lastly, we need to recognize that we need to invest in the developing world. So if you're only investing in the U.S. around climate, it's not enough. We need to be looking at it from an emerging markets, developing markets perspective as well, because 8 billion people, most of the people that suffer the most, and I don't need to give you all the stats, are sitting in these emerging economies And we really need to focus on how we rise all tides together. Thanks, Jen. I love the last points around focusing outside the U.S. and the importance and impact of doing so. Within the U.S., let's talk for a moment about ESG. There's a lot of noise here in the U.S. around ESG and really a political backlash to aligning corporate purpose to social and environmental goals. At the same time, disclosure rules in Europe and probably soon in the U.S. are creating more transparency about companies' emissions. And while some companies see benefit in talking about sustainability efforts, others are blatantly greenwashing and still others are green hushing and simply trying to hide their sustainability efforts for fear of being attacked. So it's a wild moment with a lot of noise. I'm curious, how is this all playing out for you and your clientele and How do you think this will play out in the longer term? Yeah, first, I'm really glad to say that I actually don't have to take this on daily because the clients of Align are deeply committed to this. So they understand what's at stake and they've chosen to integrate this into how they build their portfolios. So we actually don't need to combat this daily. Where I have to spend a lot of time combating it is normally in the media or people that haven't bought in or still on the fence And I would say I frame it in kind of three ways. One is we've never had an investment style criticized from a political manner in the way in which it's being done today. This is very similar to us saying that passive investments or active investments is one is right and one is wrong or one is right and one is left. This is a stylistic way of investing with fundamentals. When you think about E, S, and G, These are factors in which we use to do diligence opportunities to de-risk them and to derive future alpha and mitigate future risk, right? So they're factors that have now gotten conflated. I'd say if you actually think about what's happening, it is a political stunt. And if we take a step back, I think where we're going to end up getting is somewhere in the middle, right? We'll end up using the stuff that's going on in Europe to bring us more to the middle because we have global companies that are in the U.S. that operate in Europe. And if you don't believe me from a climate perspective, just look at what's taking place right now from a technology perspective. I think we'll move more to the middle just by the nature of that we're global businesses working in a global economy. 
I think the second thing is, is that companies are going to have to reconcile with who they are and what their values stand for. And they will have to take a stand one way or the other. And then lastly, I think the companies that are starting to become hush about it or switching to the other side, I think it actually just demonstrates their true colors. And what I mean by that is that they were really only in it to make money. And the best analogy, Jason, that I could liken this to is when oil and gas was not doing well, clients' portfolios were thriving. When oil and gas was thriving last year, right, and doing extraordinarily well, we were underperforming certain benchmarks, which was to be expected. And we would say to clients, you can't have it both ways. You either are committed to the climate transition and ultimately us being able to inhabit this planet, or you're not. You're committed to financial returns only, and that's what drives you. And I think there's going to be somewhere in the middle for this transition of wealth. One, you have $30 trillion transferring to women by 2030, either through earnings or inheritance. And then you have the transition of wealth to the next generation. And they already ingrained this in their decision-making from where they work to what they eat to how they live their life. So ultimately, Mother Earth is going to be restored. She'll regenerate herself. And it's up to us as humans. Are we going to let a political disagreement actually hinder the progress that we need to make over the next 7 to 10 to 20 years or are we going to be silenced by the negative connotation that has become the norm? Thanks, Jen. You zoomed out to the bigger picture around the transfer of wealth and just how finance is changing. And I'd love to better understand how you see the role of finance is accelerating our response to climate change, what's working, and what else needs to change. Well, I think what's working is, again, women and the next generation, so millennials and Gen Zs, they look at these from different factors beyond just the financial return. And if you look at the shift of not only the generations, you're going to naturally see a shift in policy down the road, as well as how companies are run, and then ultimately how investment portfolios are allocated. I also think that What's not working is that we are trying to use old systems to build a new system. We are really trying to use the same fundamentals that built the old system, which was extractive, to build this new system. And we really need to pause and ask ourselves, what does a new system look like? I actually stopped using that we're an impact investment advisory firm. That is what we are. That's solely what we do 100% of the time. But we're actually changing the face of finance, not just in who we invest in and what we invest in, but how we invest. And then ultimately the ownership structure, not only from kind of the makeup of the leadership team to the board, to the investment committee, but all the way down to the ownership of the organization. And I think you're going to continue to see more of that as people factor in this multi-stakeholder approach and really help clients make better investment decisions that allow them to have their financial returns and their impact too. Jen, you know, it's fascinating talking to you because when we hear about systems change or efforts to drive systems change, it's more often coming from grassroots organizations that want to fundamentally change how systems work. 
you don't hear it as often coming from wealth management or from people working with high net worth families and institutions or that really have a grasp of how the financial system is working. So I'd love to get a better sense of how you see systematic change happening and what it looks like when it's working better. Well, I'm going to stick to wealth management just because that's what I know best. And I've spent over two decades in it. I think partly wealth management needs to shift back to being relationship driven versus transactional driven. Over the last 20 to 30 years, it's been about transactions, product, scale, and ultimately it's come at the client's expense. And really what clients are seeking is values, values alignment, value add, and really being part of something bigger than themselves and being brought back to them as the person, as the individual. It's a relationship business. It's how it started out. It's probably where it's headed back. And when you actually strip out the AUM, the products, the fees, all of the stuff that has become the system, you can get back to doing what fundamentally it was designed to do in the first place, which is meet people where they're at, listen to them, help them make good educated decisions, educate them where they need to be educated and allow them to build sustainable lifestyles that meet their goals and objectives for themselves and future generations, as well as the people on the planet. So I think, Jason, we're moving from an age over the last 20 years of transactions back to relationships. And I also think AI will help advance that even faster because I think clients will start to see who's really delivering value and who is really just a software or an algorithm or something that actually a computer can do better. And then there's the people that really derive the value. Let's go deeper into that. I'm sure a lot of people are curious about how AI will change finance. Are you saying that AI won't be able to listen to clients and create the kind of relationship-driven experiences that you see as critical? Or how is it that you see AI failing? I don't think I meant to say it's going to fail. I think it's going to be really powerful for certain things that AI will actually do it better. So asset allocation, due diligence, certain fundamentals. I think where the relationship side comes in is understanding kind of why you're driven by a certain thing and how that's woven into your portfolio. So for example, if you're focused on mental health because you've had mental health in your family, for decades or generations, the AI can give you certain mental health investments potentially, but the AI might not be as savvy at saying this mental health opportunity should sit inside of this entity and all of these together actually accomplish what you're trying to accomplish from an outcomes perspective. So I think it comes down to really listening what drives the client to make different decisions and leaning in there so they get more of that and all the things that can get done by AI and certain technologies can be like basically at the foundational level that you're building on top of. So we're spending our energy and time in the places that really do drive the client forward. If AI or technology could do it, we would be investing more than we are investing in climate and social justice than we are today, right? The reason we're not investing at the level we need to is because advisors still control the capital and 
they're just not yet equipped to be able to weave this into portfolios. And that's something that we work really hard at Align is partnering with advisors as well to help them meet their clients where they're at. Would you say more? Why is it hard for individual advisors to weave climates or social priorities into the portfolios? I would say three reasons. One is they don't have a lot of product on their own platform. So they may have one solution versus dozens of solutions. Two, they may be constrained by the way that their firm or broker dealer or platform operates. And so they're at the mercy of what comes through at the kind of highest level. And then three, advisors like to really understand the client and demonstrate that they're the expert. And when they're not, they tend to shy away from it. This is just me working with advisors for the last 10 years, right? Advisor to advisor. I see that they get nervous going into an area where they may not be the expert or they may have a steep learning curve themselves. And I always remind them, we're all human. We're having a human conversation and a human experience And they're learning at the same time you're learning and they're excited to be in a new conversation. Thanks, Jen. Really helpful and interesting. I'm curious to turn back to the investors and the role that they can play. And you said earlier that one thing that you recommend is for people to start with thinking about where they bank and how they might be able to exert pressure on the types of things that their banks fund. So I'm really curious, what are the things that retail investors can do to support changes that you see us needing? And What else is needed to make this happen? One is just know where your money sleeps at night. Look at the Reinforced Action Network report. It comes out annually. It's very, very telling. And that allows you to then start a dialogue that otherwise you may not be having. It's really hard for clients to shift banking relationships because it involves so much because we're so woven together with our banking relationship. You know, everything's automatic. It's set up. It's easy right? We've done it intentionally. It's similar to if we say, let's all wean off of Amazon and buy local. That takes practice and a behavioral shift. So I think number one is understand who you're banking with and what they're funding because your money is loaned out to projects and other investments that they're making. The second thing is, is you can bank with credit unions, local banks, look at credit CDFIs, They're a great instrument. You can get into them for very little amount of money. So retail investors can also invest. These are funding projects in your local communities that you probably care about. And then lastly, instead of just being in a traditional money market or savings account, there are options. Stonecastle is a great one where you can actually move your money into a product that then distributes across 750 different institutions. And those funds are being loaned out to communities and beneficiaries that really need that capital. So your money is doing good while you're waiting to deploy it in another manner. Great. Thank you, Jen. We've talked a lot about how you've seen finance and impact investing change and a bit of where you think it's going. I'm really curious, as you look forward five or 10 years, what conversation do you think we'll be having? How will this space be categorically different? And How will it be the same? Great question. I think it's going to continue to mainstream and will be just part of how we invest. I think we'll be less dogmatic or less political. 
because we will have looked at the fundamentals over a 10 and 20 year period. So we'll be able to kind of use the fundamentals as well as the science to back up the returns as well as the impact that was demonstrated. Today, we really still just have outputs. We really haven't yet demonstrated outcomes. Outcomes are going to take decades or multiple decades, and we haven't been at it long enough in some ways to be able to demonstrate those outcomes. So I think when we start to see a shift that society is working better for everyone, then we'll have demonstrated that this is just a good way to do business and a good way to invest. I think more of what we'll see that maybe is on the negative side or the opposite of that equation is we're still going to have the systems we have because I think that's going to take at least another 15 to 20 years to really disrupt. We're still going to have boardrooms that need to be educated and shift in their thinking and experiences and makeup. But I'm very optimistic and I have a ton of hope for where we're going based on what I've seen over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think lastly, we'll stop putting everything into silos and we'll start to see where do they actually intersect and how do they play together. And we'll start reframing our global issues as ways to solve them through a more macro lens with micro solutions. So just to give you a concrete example of that, rather than just tackling homelessness, we can tackle it from an economic opportunities perspective as well as a climate perspective and really focus on affordable housing and increasing their income and shifting and building wealth. Those three things will shift kind of basic human rights, basic human needs, and ultimately continue to move us in the direction that we're seeking. And then when we think about climate, I think we have a 10 to 15 year time horizon. Really matters what we do today. I think the companies that are private companies that will be public companies in five to seven years, it matters because those companies need to get funded today. They need to be de-risks so that they can then be institutionalized and scale and really build the infrastructure we need to have a sustainable and just world for everyone. Thank you. That seems to be a perfect vision to end with. Jen, best of luck with the work that you're doing. And thank you again for sharing your thoughts today. Thank you for all your work and appreciate being able to spend the last 30 minutes with you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.